Well, this morning we continue our series in 1 Corinthians entitled, Recalibrate Your Life. As we explore the divisions that Paul is addressing within the church, the troubling issues that are showing themselves in divisive behavior in the congregation, they're demonstrating a lack of godly wisdom, a lack of having their minds set on Christ, and Paul is encouraging them to trust in the Spirit of God and to consider Jesus as the unifying force in their congregation. And as we've been doing that, Pastor Wines, Pastor Bozeman have been encouraging us to look at our own lives, our own church, our own congregation, and say, is there any, do we find any of that within ourselves? We shouldn't be too confident to think that that doesn't creep in right here, right now. And we've been encouraged the last couple of weeks by Pastor Winans to look to the way of Christ and the wisdom of the Spirit for our hope, for our guidance, for our power. And this week we continue to look at Corinthians and their church and consider us and our very lives and ask the question, are we demonstrating any immaturity? Do we need to grow in maturity? How can we leave behind, put behind childish ways and live as mature followers of Jesus? And so if you would stand again in the honor of the reading of God's word. Let's read from 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 to 9. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. The word of our Lord, thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we ask now for the spirit of wisdom. We pray that as we come to your word that you would be our teacher. And if there's anything that I say that is not of you, I pray that it would come to nothing. But instead, we ask to do that work of transformation in each of us, that we would become more faithful followers of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, in the 1970s, the sitcom All in the Family broke ground in American television programming by confronting divisive and controversial issues such as racism, anti-Semitism, feminism, 
they, they went into the realm of politics and religion and kind of brought things out that respectable TV wouldn't do in the past. And in so doing, they used their lead character, the family patriarch, Archie Bunker. He was the primary foil for each issue. He was a narrow-minded and grumpy blue-collar World War II vet with a soft spot for his family. Under all that gruff, loved his family. And Archie's prejudice was depicted not with malice, but rather ignorance and a kind of immaturity, an intellectual maybe immaturity. In each show, he would slowly, reluctantly have to learn a new way of thinking, a more enlightened view on some of these issues, um, often from the viewpoint of his daughter Gloria or his son-in-law, who he affectionately referred to as Meathead, or not so affectionately. <laughs> um, and each episode, there would be some uncomfortable situation, some um, either humorous or sad issue that, that brought Archie's ire to the forefront, and he would begin having these ver very intense verbal disputes with his family. And much of the dialogue revolved around these things. And so, um, as he would dig himself into deeper and deeper holes, he frequently would then devolve into childlike behaviors as he realized that he wasn't going to win this argument. And so, he would sometimes call his, his, uh, his son-in-law not just meathead, but he would say, you dumb Polak. And, and be derisive in that way. But often he would just revert to these childish behaviors. He would stick his finger on the end of his nose and, and wiggle it like that when, when he couldn't get his point across, or he'd stick out his tongue, or famously he would just look at, look at him and said, you meathead, and just go <laughs> in his frustration over, over all this stuff. Not only did his antics get a lot of laughs, but I think they also resonated with an audience that could relate to such feelings. All of us know what it's like to live with childlike inclinations that want to rise to the surface when we're frustrated. We can be prone to give immature responses to conflict and to tough issues. Changing one's views or being challenged in your own views is often uncomfortable. And it makes relational living uncomfortable. Now, I don't know that Paul was aware of things like name-calling and childish gestures happening in Corinth. But in addressing the divisive behavior of the church in Corinth, he does describe them as infants, unable to digest the food of God's spiritual wisdom. Kind of difficult words to hear, I think. To put it another way, their outward behavior is reflecting an inner spiritual immaturity. The jealousy and strife exhibited within their community is not a reflection of God's wisdom, but rather that of the world from which they should be leaving behind. And in this, in this instance, Paul, being led by the Holy Spirit, decides to diagnose their spiritual condition 
or he defines their immaturity not on their lack of knowledge of the Bible, or they, they're not theologically astute enough. He's not saying that, oh, you're not doing enough stuff within the church, or you're, you can't pray well enough, things like Sometimes those things that we will tend to look at others and say, oh, that's what makes them mature or immature. It's not about that. He's looking at the way they behave with one another. He's looking at the lack of love and unity that they're displaying, and it's that that he's diagnosing as childish, as infantile. As Pastor Winans mentioned a few weeks ago, they were allowing their cultural influences of, of the values of the sophists, of sophistry, of, of aligning themselves with people who were able to display wonderful means of rhetoric and so forth, and it was through their alignment of those things that they were trying to become self-important or, or get noticed, and it was, it was that that was starting to bring this division because they were giving in to the philosophy of their time. And it was producing personality cults and divisive factions within the church, and it's those things that Paul says that they need to address. He wants them to be unified. He wants them to people who know how to love one another. Is there any surprise that later on in this very letter, one of the most famous, well-known pericopes on love that has ever been given to mankind was written in 1 Corinthians 13? And at the end of that, he talks about, I put the childish ways behind me. I spoke like a child. I used to reason like a child. But now, because of Christ, I follow the way of love. Well, as we look at the opening verses of chapter 3 this morning, we need to realize that we sometimes can also revert to those childish ways. And maybe we don't think of it in this way, but when we have these controversies and when we have this lack of unity, that really becomes the issue. And that's our big idea this morning. That's the thing that Paul's addressing here and other places in Scripture realizes that Spiritual immaturity is a problem. That we can come to Christ and, and, and not really grow up in the faith at times. And it's not necessarily in the ways that we think, but it's often revealed in these relational ways. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, how do we become mature? How do we move beyond immaturity? And there's going to be much he has to say about this in, in 1 Corinthians, but this morning we're just going to look at, at these verses where we read and, and notice two things. One is we must reject the way of the world. We must turn away from that way of the world that makes us act in a fleshly way. And then we must rather embrace or accept the way of Christ. And we'll look at two ways of looking at our way of Christ in a, in a new identity, identity as God's people and as servants. And so, first, we must reject the way of the world. The opening chapters of 1 Corinthians, as Pastor Winans has mentioned, are one continual discussion. He's, a, he's still on this issue of divisions of the church, and he's, he's contrasting worldly wisdom with the wisdom of God. The wisdom revealed in God's word and through the gospel with the way of the world. And in this section of Paul's teaching, he uses various words to highlight this contrast with respect to humanity. And in particular, he, he uses um, 
two words that would be apart from being spiritual and one that's spiritual. So in, in the Greek, that's the word pneumatikos or pneumas, which is the spirit, okay? And that, that's consistent throughout. The way of the God is the way of the spirit. And in chapter 2, last week, Pastor Winus, he talked about the natural man versus the spiritual man, remember? And that natural man, that's the word psychikos, and that's used in, in, at the end of chapter 2. But here in chapter 3, Paul doesn't bring that word back up. He, he rather introduces this word sarkikos, or the, from the word sarks, which is sometimes traded world, worldly or fleshly. And, and, and in other places in Paul's writing, sometimes it even gets traded sinful nature. And so I just want to, to share with you a little bit this from this article on the dictionary of, of Paul and his letters when he's talking about the word flesh and how Paul uses it. Because he uses, sometimes he just uses it like the skin on our bodies or the fact that we have a physical existence. But other times he, he, he takes that and imbues it with new meaning. And so what uh, Richard Erickson says, he says, Paul's most characteristic use of sarks and his most frequent is his application of sarks to sinful human nature. In over two-thirds of the many contrasts between sarks and pneuma, that's between flesh and spirit, Flesh, or sarks, refers to fallen human nature. And most of these are found in Galatians 5 and 6 and Romans 8. So I just want to look at those passages real quick to help us bring this out a little bit, because you're probably familiar, some of you, with, with this terminology. And, and just look at how Paul's using it in these passages, and, and then we'll try to understand how he's doing it in Corinthians. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. That's very similar sounding to the natural man, right, without the Spirit. But we see here, down at the bottom, he says, You, however, not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if the fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. So there's some dynamic going on that he's speaking to people who are to be in the Spirit, but yet he says... They're in the flesh. And so what he keeps saying is, who, what is your mindset on? What is the thing we do? Are, are we rejecting the way of the flesh and, and not setting our mind on it, but rather are we setting our mind on Christ? Well, in Galatians 5, he uses another metaphor of not just setting the mind, but of walking by the Spirit. He says, but I say walk by the Spirit. The contrast is this is what we're doing, rejecting that way. We walk by the Spirit. And, if you, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to each other. So we see this language of opposition and this contrast continuing. But if we notice in each of those passages, Romans 8 and Galatians 5, Paul's talking about this choice of setting our minds or walking in the spirit. He's encouraging to reject the, the former way and embrace the way of the spirit. And the flesh there is this kind of living out this rebellious lifestyle consciously. You notice the consciousness of this? That it's set your minds or to walk by, right? Well, interestingly, when we go to Corinthians here, he says that they are people of the flesh, but he says they're infants in Christ, right? So it's, he's not talking to them as a natural man, right? He says they're in Christ, but they're, but they're acting like infants. They're just infants. So he has to treat them like they're of the flesh, of the world. Okay? Because um, he says, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Almost like they're without the spirit. But, but yet, 
he doesn't believe they're not without the Spirit, right? Because he says they're infants in Christ. Well, what's going on here? Well, I think what part of the, is part of this language of immaturity. And so the same uh, scholar, Richard Erickson, he says Paul's use of sarkonos in 1 Corinthians 3.1 reads like an ad hominem criticism of Gnosticizing believers at Corinth. Whoa, what, what's that mean? Well, we'll get to it. But, but what he says, and probably means immature rather than rebellious. So he's highlighting their immaturity, not their rebellion. Are they rebellious? Well, sort of, but not necessarily consciously. Okay? Now, this whole Gnosticizing thing, this criticism of Gnosticism, it's that Greek way of thinking, that Greco-Roman thinking of this spiritual duality, thinking that as long as you think the right things or talk the right way, it really doesn't matter how you behave. Kind of this, this duality was some of the things that came out of that. And, he, and what Paul's saying is that's immature. That's not the way of Christ. That's, that's not the wisdom. One of the ways I've been thinking about this to maybe help me put this, put some flesh on this is to, um, is I was thinking about when I was learning to play basketball. I loved to play basketball and I played it my whole life. And when I was little, when I was learning to shoot the basketball, I had no upper body strength, right? I still don't have a whole lot. But the, um, the, but what I had to do to get the ball to the basket, I had to shoot from down here. So if you notice, little kids will do that, right? So we'll shoot from down here to get my whole body weight and propel it up to the goal. Well, as I got older and was competing at higher levels, my brother, old, had an older brother, and my dad and coaches would say, you need to move your shot from down here by your waist up here above your shoulder because then it's not easy, as easily blocked, right? And you, and you can get your shot off better. And so I was in the process of learning how to shoot, move, to, I'd shot, you know, thousands and thousands of baskets, and when I was a little kid, I was, I was probably better as, a, as like a nine-year-old than I was as a 16-year-old, you know? So, um, I could, I could hit all of these shots, but then when I started moving it up, I wasn't as consistent, right? And what would happen is like in games or even in practices, like in intense situations, I would, I would still I'd start moving it back down here. And I wasn't even really aware of it. It, just been such, it was such a habit in my life. And under pressure and intense situation, I'd just move it back down here, right? And then my brother would come to me, he was just shooting like a baby again, right? <laughs> And I didn't even know what I was doing it, but I needed him to point it out to me. See, that's what I think Paul's doing here with the Corinthians. They don't even know. They don't think they're being immature. They don't see that their behavior is bad, and Paul's pointing it out to them and said, I'm having to treat you like infants because you're walking in the ways of the world. You think you've rejected them, but you really haven't. And so I've got to treat you like a child again. That's not necessarily always easy to hear, but it's very important that we do hear it. Because we need to be reminded that we're constantly, the world is constantly still trying to give, to give us its wisdom. Whenever we watch the news, when we go to, sometimes when we go to school, we can learn good things, but we also sometimes we have to understand what philosophy is it coming from, right? We have to be discerning about the news we read and the songs we listen to and all those things because many of them are man-centered and they're trusting in the human ability, just like the Corinthians were trusting in, in, in following a man, you know, instead of following Christ. You know, the first step to coming to faith in Christ is to recognize our need for a Savior. It's to see our sin exposed. 
And I think the same is true in our ongoing spiritual growth. If we don't recognize the influence of worldly, worldly ways of thinking that still influence us, we'll just revert back to those old habits and be shaped by them. We need people to come and speak into our lives about that. We need, first, the Word of God, and we need to study it with others, right? I need my brother Jim here to tell me sometimes, hey, Matt, you're acting like a child, right? right? I need, I need Daryl to say the same thing, and we, we need to do it around the Word of God. We need to let it speak the wisdom of God and the Spirit of God use that in our lives, and we need to be asking the question, are we being formed more by the world or by the Spirit? Now, the indicators of that, we can go back to Pastor Bozeman's sermon a few weeks ago. He listed all kinds of things that were causing divisions and that can still today. But then with that, we need to ask ourselves, why? Why are those things manifesting themselves? Well, just a couple week, a week after that, Pastor Wynas proposed this idea that um, this, he used this term called expressive individualism, right? Expressive individualism is the idea that meaning and identity aren't given to me by outside influences like parents, church, God, but rather are found within me. And I think what's happened in our society is this good idea of freedom that comes not in, as individual autonomy, but comes as a gift from God, right? We've taken individual autonomy in our, in our society, and we've raised it to an idol, to a godlike thing, to the point where now society's constantly telling people, you know, not, it used to be, you know, like, be all you can be in the army, that kind of thing, but now it's you define yourself. You determine who you are. You, it's up to you. And what that really is doing, it's taking us all the way back to the garden when the snake comes to Adam and Eve and says, you know, you want to be like God? And let me tell you a secret. They were already made in his image and likeness. We're going to talk about that, right? But it's more, it's not just like God. It's like, do you want to become God yourself, right? Go ahead and eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Determine wisdom on your own terms. You figure it out. Be your own God and live your own way. Well, how did that work out for Adam and Eve? How's that worked out for humanity? How is, how is expressive individualism working out itself out in our country today? You know that we have the highest rates of depression among young people today? My daughter, who's over here, works with college students. All the time, she's dealing with students who are just like, lost trying to figure things out because of this huge pressure to figure it out instead of turning to Jesus. Which leads me to the second point, is we must accept the ways of Christ. The solution to this whole thing is really to find our identity in Christ. And we're going to look at two ways Paul talks about this, identity as the corporate people of God and identity as servants. You know, a few weeks ago, Pastor Winans brought this to our attention in the sermon he called The Way of Christ. And if you, if you haven't listened to it or you need a refresher, go back. Um, but, but in that, he talked about in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, that Paul resolved to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. 
right? And so what Paul's doing, he says, the core philosophy on which he's basing his whole life, his preaching, his teaching, even the way he lives, is the sacrificial, self-giving life of Jesus. That is what he resolves to govern all things. And so as he thinks about how to combat people who are seeking another way of life, who are, who are making it about themselves, who are seeking status and recognition through whatever means, he's like, what, what can I do? So he starts referring to himself as a servant. And he starts talking to them as God's possessions. And so we have this kind of this individual identity in Christ and this corporate identity in Christ. And so I want to talk first about this corporate identity, that we must accept the way of Christ by embracing the identity of God's people. Paul describes the Corinthians as God's field or God's building. We see there in the yellow at the bottom, right? Now, this is Old Testament language. Israel would be referred to as God's vineyard. He planted a vineyard. It was his people. And Jesus often used agricultural um, parables to talk about the people of God, to describe the kingdom, right? And so all of this should be seen, this identity of, of God's possession, God's own. And then this building language to make us think about temple language, right? Of God's temple, God's desire to dwell in his presence with his people as their king. We don't have claim on our own lives. God has claim over us. And as followers of Christ, we are his. We're bought with a price, right? Well, if we think about this language, even back to Genesis 1 to 3, we have... We're reminded that when God makes, when he makes all creation and he makes the last part of his creation humans, he calls them his image. That we are his image bearers. We represent him. People are, we're to look at each other and we're to be reminded that we are gods. Not that we are like small g, that, that we are God's possession, right? And so he says, after he makes them his image, he says, be fruitful and multiply. Kind of like a field that is planted is to be fruitful and multiply, right? He says that we are to care for his creation, okay, as workers. And then in chapter 2, God actually does plant a garden for them on the top of this mountain, symbolic of this temple kind of place where he walks with them and dwells with them. And he, they are his representatives, they're commanded to work and keep the garden. In that same language, those two Hebrew words are the same words that are used for the priests, are to work and keep the temple. And so they see that they are, their job is to do that, and their identity is wrapped up in that. See, when we accept Christ as Savior and Lord, we relinquish our rights to self-determination and self-identification. We entrust ourselves into his loving arms, knowing he will provide with, for us. And all that we need for acceptance and joy and life and meaning will be found in him. And collectively, together, as God's people with him, we become his very temple. Paul later in Corinthians uses the same language. I don't have the scripture up for us, but it's 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, when he's in exhorting them to, to refrain from sexual immorality, he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 
That's our identity together, all of us. We're God's. We're his possession. Well, secondly, another way that we, in this process of maturity and accepting our identity in Christ, is we need to accept the way of Christ by embracing our identity as servants. I think Paul purposely is doing this because he knows that they're vying for this status and they're saying, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus. They're all trying to kind of get to the front of the line and show themselves, right? And he says, I'm going to use, even though he and Apollos are leaders, he can say, and he does other places, I'm Paul an apostle, but here he says, no, I'm Paul the servant. I'm the, I'm the one working in God's field. I plant Apollos waters to counteract that mentality. Because I think there's something inherent about us as image bearers in the way that he made us. We were made to attract attention. An image is supposed to be noticed, right? It's even in the ancient Near Eastern mindset, they they would make the image and put it in the temple because you were supposed to draw your eyes to that. But not for the purpose of the stone or piece of wood itself. It was there to make them think of the God that it represented, and that's the way we are. See, we... We take this thing of God giving us all this intelligence and love and even our physicalness that in such a way that we are noticed. But we don't know, but when we take that and hold on to it or make it for ourselves, we don't know how we can handle it. We abuse it, we distort it. We make it about us when the whole purpose is that we were made to make to be about God. See how that happens? And so we need to, to remember this language of a servant that I exist for God's glory. I exist for him and his purposes. Because when we take it and make it for us, when we, we distort that image for our own purpose, that's when we start vying for attention. That's when we want recognition. That's when we want status. That's when we start elbowing the other people, get out of my way, notice me. And we have a whole society of people who are doing that on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube I need to get as many followers as I can because I need, to, I need to increase my reputation and my status because that's how I'm going to be something in life. And that kind of stuff can start creeping into the church. And we need to be careful of it. God showed this to me um, in my life in ministry a number of years ago. I'm still learning it. I still have to preach this to myself all the time. But I was taking uh, students, university students, on mission trips to Bolivia. And I was working with a ministry that people in my family and friends of mine had been going to for a number of years. And I'd been going a number of years as well. But they were doing a, they, they were doing a lot of the heavy lifting and a lot of the daily stuff, especially the people who were actually there on the ground all the time. And, but in this kind of time of my life, I was, I was kind of bemoaning at times that why don't I get chosen to be the speaker for for this thing, or, you know, I'm not, I don't get recognized enough within my ministry circles, or I want to, you know, nobody in church really knows what I do and all this kind of stuff, and I was just kind of feeling sorry for myself, you know, wanting to be recognized. And when I was on this, this particular trip that year, um, it just so happened that some of the people on the trip, you know, they, they didn't know me that well. I mean, students were coming from various campuses, and we were getting to know each other before the trip, and then we went on the trip. But I had one particular person, it was another staff, who came to me and, and was like, man, I didn't really realize what all's going on down here, what you do, what this trip's really about. You know, I'm really grateful for that. I said, well, you know, what made you come to that conclusion? He goes, well, what it was is, 
You know, when you were saying goodbye to that family, and they were just hugging you and crying and saying, wait till ne- we can't wait to see you next year, they were like, man, just show what God's doing and how he's using you. And I'm like, funny thing is, is you know, in the whole scheme of things, I do very, did, wasn't doing a whole lot. I was just bringing the team down and keeping relationships going, but it really my parents and friends and others had, had been investing in them all the time, and God's like, you're just a little watering can. Dented, paint's fallen off, got a few holes in it, right? But I use it. See, they're noticing the, that God gives the growth, right? That's the thing. And when I stopped making my identity and my purpose about me getting recognized, but rather when, I, when the Holy Spirit said, don't you enjoy what I'm doing here and people are seeing it and you get to actually expose people to the gospel of God and how it's growing in Bolivia and how lives are being changed and how hearts are being changed. Love being a watering can if that's what you are. Don't make it about anything else because ultimately it's about me. So what's the longing in your heart? What are you yearning for deep down inside? Are there desires of the flesh that are rising to the surface at times? Do you crave things to be recognized, to be noticed, to have your way? You know, all of us like an attaboy or an girl now and then. Encouragement is a good thing, you know? Send notes to Todd Bachman and Daryl Bozeman of Thanksgiving for all they're doing to help with this process of getting, you know, we need that encouragement. But if Todd or Daryl start thinking that their ministry is all about those thank you notes, right? Then they're serving the wrong thing, Right? It's all about Jesus. And if we start doing anything for any other reason, or we start attaching our self-worth to anything else other than Jesus, it's going to start manifesting itself in jealousy and strife and discord and disunity. And we're going to need somebody to come to us and say, you child, don't you know that it's about me? Because we're made to reflect the love of Christ. We plant, we water, we do what we have to do, but God gives the growth, and we trust in Him. You know, when G, one of the things that's been helpful for me to keep reflecting on this, just a few verses that I want to keep just soaking in, is John 15, 5, where Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. My job is just to bear fruit. It's to bear fruit that looks like Christ, Right? And I can't do it without his help. So don't make it about me anyway. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And then when I'm seeking that recognition and that glory and I want to be noticed for me, I, this, these verses from John's high, uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says to the Father, the glory that you have given me, I've given to them. See, see he's going to give us glory. We don't... We don't get it ourselves, we get it through Christ. 
that they may be one even as we are one. And it's, it's that unity, that that glory is going to come more through our unity than it is through anything else. I in them and you in me, that they may now become perfectly one. Jesus' prayer for his church is that we would be one in him so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. We are loved. Whatever that heart thing that you're longing for, know that God loves you. That's why he sent Jesus for you. That's why he died for us. In a few moments, we're going to come to the table of fellowship as we take communion. As both an act of remembering what Christ has done for us, but also an act of participating by faith in his ongoing work in our life by his Spirit. In communion, we're reminded of our identity in Christ and that we are welcome servants of his at the table. In taking the bread and the wine, or the juice in our case, we are once again declaring that our allegiance is to Christ alone. We're rejecting all other ways of life and we're accepting the way of Christ. That's what this communicates. And this table is open to anyone who's made that choice. This isn't a Presbyterian table. It's not a cornerstone table. It's a table of fellowship with the Lord Jesus. Have you trusted in him? And we do, as we do this each month, it's an opportunity for reflection. It's an opportunity to examine the childish ways within that still sometimes rise to the surface. And as we do, we turn those things over to God. We trust in Jesus once again, and we ask for the Spirit's help to live with love and unity. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for Jesus, for how he brings us back into right relationship with you, for his life of sacrifice, and also for his resurrection, for the new life that we have in him, that we can walk in the way of the Spirit. And so we pray for your help, even now, as your people. Transform us into a loving and unified people who live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.